Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Pivotal Insights. This week, Dormain and I reminisce all the way back to last week, where we attended Spring One Platform in Washington, D.C. Spring One Platform is, of course, Pivotal's user and customer conference. There were quite a few developers, operations teams, CIOs, VPs of IT, and even some on the business side joining us for four fun-filled days of sessions and interviews and keynotes. And for those of you who weren't able to attend, or even those who could but perhaps didn't catch every session, Dormain and I look back, reflecting on some of the highlights, at least from our perspective, and sharing some of the wisdom we learned from the customers, partners, and the pivots that attended. Enjoy. So we're back from a fun week at Spring One Platform in... I was going to say lovely DC, but technically we were over the river in Maryland. But nonetheless, it was a lovely uh, conference, I thought. It was DC-ish, kind of, you know, at like the airport you used was DC and the sightseeing folks did on the side was DC. So I would say it's DC-ish. Yeah, you could you could see DC from the those giant, there's giant windows they had uh, at uh, the Gaylord National Harbor Hotel, where the conference took place. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And what's always fun, um, this is, I think, the second time I've been to a conference at a Gaylord property. And mm-hmm. so that atrium that they have, um, where then they, they kind of almost build like a little fake city inside it with this like little little streets and right turn corners. Like there's no protected left turns because it's all pedestrians. But it's sort of, it feels a little bit like Disneyland. It's got a Disney-ish. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I think it's sort of a cross between uh, Disneyland and Vegas because it's all indoors and it's all confined. You don't have to leave if you don't want to. You can get everything you need inside the property. Um, but yeah, I think I was with you at the other the other conference you went to. Weren't we at uh, it was, a Gaylord property for, I think it was for the Gartner yeah. data event Yeah, in Texas. Yeah. Um, and I noticed they both have nice little streams running through the the town like a water feature it's 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 very nice yeah um i just it's it's just like that whole like it's a slightly miniaturized version of reality well so speaking of like you know um math and percentages right seven eighth size reality um one thing that did seem to defy reality or at least uh probability was that you and I were both there and I did not see you one time. That's true. Um, although I did see you on the stage. So, but so you didn't see me, um, but I was there. Uh, of course I was <clears throat> spent most of my time in the, in the community hub on the pivotal story stage interviewing. Uh, I think we did 17 interviews. Wow. Most of those were customers. I think we had at least, I think 15 customers, one partner and one, Mr. Michael Dell. I don't know what you call him. Right. One, C- CEO, one CEO and chairman uh, of Dell Technologies. So, yeah, so I was pretty much on that stage just about the entire show. Uh, I, I did get to hang out in the keynotes a little bit, although I was spending most of that time prepping for the upcoming interviews. Uh, so I'm interested to get your takeaways on some of the some of the keynotes. So we did those interviews Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So Thursday, I, I was able to, to go to the conference. But to be honest with you, by that point, after 17 interviews over the course of two and a half days, 
I was a little fried. So don't ask me what happened Thursday because I was I was a little out of it by that point. It's all a blur. Yeah, it's kind of the whole yeah. the whole thing is a blur, uh, which is good. We're doing this podcast so we can take a minute and reflect and think about it. Yeah, and you got to do that before you know while everything is cached in in memory, so we can really write it to disc. Exactly. You know, the, the big the big disc upstairs. <laughs> um, yeah. No. I mean, in terms of getting to be an MC on the main stage. It was, that was fun with, uh, with Mr. Josh Long. I've never had so many people approach me to ask if I actually had gone running that morning. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, just kind of wonder what do they think people who go running actually wear? Because it's not what I was wearing. Um, like real runners, there's like actual performance clothes. I think that, you know, are not ridiculous looking. Uh, but anyways, it was, it was fun and uh, got to meet lots of people. See lots of familiar faces. We were just talking about how it feels like a family reunion and there's always a few new people that you're introducing to your big crazy family, but you walk away and they're like, Oh, I had a great time. Can I join this family? That's like, <laughs> all right. Let's, let's yep. Do that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I, th- I think that uh, that that's a good way to, to sum it up. Um, a giant family reunion that's only getting bigger every year, uh, and it's 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 fun. There's so many uh, interesting people to meet, and just a great event. So so let's start with your highlights from from the show. What were what were some of the things that jumped out to you? Like, hey, that was fantastic. The the there was a, a, a woman from DBS Bank, um, the, the Development Bank of Singapore. And uh, I, I might be not pronouncing her name properly, but it's uh, I think it's Siu Cho So. Um, and she gave a breakout on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, and then she was actually on the main stage on Thursday. And so her breakout was actually quite detailed. And it was awesome. Her story was great. And she really knew her stuff. You know, folks were asking, throwing out questions. How do you handle this? How do you handle that? And she didn't miss a beat. She just, she's like, yep, we do it this way. Uh, you know, I asked her, she talked about how, um, one of the things they built out as part of their, their digital transformation at the bank is they've exposed a, a set of APIs, like 200 APIs. Um, for developers to go use. And, you know, this is, this is an interesting, um, you know, litmus test, I think, when you start to expose APIs publicly for third party developers to be able to pick up and use that, that's a, I think that's a really interesting sign. Now, the 200 number is impressive. I think what's gets really impressive beyond that is actually when you start to hear and see examples of how folks are using it. So I asked her, you know, can you tell us and didn't miss a beat talked about how a, um, like a, you know, a, a gym chain and uh, in Singapore is now letting you use some of your credit card points from the credit card they offer. I think you can use those points to pay for your gym membership. And so, you know, basically kind of, almost creating this meta currency. Um, I mean, you know, all these loyalty programs just turn into this weird meta currency that you have to try and translate back to, to dollars. Um, you know, I just found out by the way, uh, Chick-fil-A has a, a rewards program and my husband has just been like 
kicking himself. He's like, I've gone this whole year without joining the Chick-fil-A membership program or whatever it is. Imagine, imagine, you know, all of the like free chicken nuggets or whatever I could have accrued in that time. Uh, we have, that's like become a ritual is Saturday mornings after my son's soccer game or basketball game or whatever it is. We just, we tend to drive over to Chick-fil-A now and let them continue to burn off a little bit of energy in the, in the indoor playground. Um, so that's, a, that's a lot of loyalty points uh, that we haven't been able to accrue and, and use in kind of the, the Chick-fil-A economy of the world. So anyway, it's really interesting to hear how DBS Bank, I'm just going to go ahead and, and just come back to DBS Bank now and, and we're going to walk, we're going to, we're going to just walk out of that Chick-fil-A parking lot, hop in our car and drive over to Singapore. Um, and yeah, so it was just super cool. And I, I love that she just knew that right off the top of her head. Like she's, she's clearly paying attention to this stuff. She's, she gets the high level. She, she gets it all the way down to the, to the details too. So um, really, really awesome and inspiring talk. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of other, other examples of folks who just were really on it, um, there was a, a gentleman, Lenny from Northern Trust and, he gave a, a breakout talk on Tuesday that was about how they've evolved part of their data architecture at Northern Trust. And, you know, talk about how it's, I, I liked how he threw up like the spaghetti slide, right? I've seen these slides before, which is, you know, you have so many different siloed systems and then you have all these different ETL processes and, you know, you just have just data all over the place and it's kind of chaos and it, it literally looks like a bowl of spaghetti. Um, and then, then he kind of showed how they iterated uh, some years ago and they started to use Hadoop. And so they were trying to funnel everything into kind of a consolidated centralized place. But the reality is they were kind of using Hadoop for some things that Hadoop isn't really good for. And so they were kind of, they've now done this next iteration using, um, you know, Spring Cloud Stream and, and RabbitMQ. Um, they brought in MarkLogic as a, as a NoSQL database for doing some of the processing. They're still using Hadoop for just kind of the pure archiving purposes, which Hadoop could be great for. Um, and they still have their, you know, their, their kind of legacy data warehousing, um, which of course I was, I was looking at too, is like, oh, I could see some opportunity to modernize that as well. But I just, I loved what he kind of laid out and um, he had a huge chunks of that. All of the, the ETL processing um, were, were all in uh, running in, in PCF. And so then, you know, folks in the audience, someone asked a question about, you know, uh, what have you done in terms of running out of memory in, you know, an application instance? And, you know, he didn't miss a beat. Uh, he he kind of threw out like, okay, you know, you tune this and how you, you manage um, uh, I can't remember what, if it was the, the, the spring, the spring cloud stream layer, and it, it kind of moves it out of the AI. So you don't run into that. I mean, just newest stuff like crazy, um, but was able to walk through like the big picture. And, um, and so that was, I just, I love that stuff. You're right. You know, a, a VP from, uh, Northern trust who can, answer a question about how you're, how you're handling, you know, memory overflow. Like who doesn't love that? <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And, and well, and it's striking that we're at spring one platform. We're talking 
at least in part, about data architecture, which isn't always uh, something you might first think about when you're uh, thinking about Spring, but <clears throat> Spring Cloud Dataflow and, uh, has become a really popular tool for those kind of workflows. Quickly back to DBS, I also actually happened to have them on the show, uh, Pivotal Story. So I did get to interview them, although that was one of the last minute additions. We're very flexible on P at Pivotal Stories. So I didn't get to prep for that. That was a, I was flying blind on that one. Um, but agreed, they really knew their stuff. I had a platform, I had a platform architecture uh, who was talking about the whole platform as a product approach, which is very different for, from the way they typically manage their infrastructure in the past at the bank. And the the other interesting thing was they were both on both from the ops side and the dev side. Uh, and we talked a little bit about that relationship uh, between, the, between the two uh, and how they've become much more collaborative. And the platform allows the ops team to be much more of a to take much more of a developer-centric view of what they're trying to deliver versus just trying to check some boxes keep the infrastructure running, that kind of thing. They're, they're focused on what kind of services can we deliver to our developers to make them more productive, to make them uh, happier developers. So yeah, that was a really interesting one. I had another guest from Singapore. Singapore Power came on. Now they're in an interesting situation. Uh, we often talk about why are you pursuing your digital transformation? And you know the why is pretty well known at this point. Competition is increasing from digital startups. Customer expectations demand that you use software better, those kinds of things. And those are all true in their case, but the uh, specific situation that they're dealing with is next year, they're going to go from a monopoly to an open market, which is going to be deregulated. So they have, uh, they're going to have some competitors to think about uh, for the first time. So that's going to dramatically change their business. So that was an interesting conversation about deregulation and that how, how that impacts what they're doing with software and their desire to get better at delivering services to their customers. So uh, yeah, Singapore was very well represented, at least on uh, the pivotal story stage. Yeah, I um I caught the breakout session from uh Shi Yong, um if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He's he's a he's kind of like one of the the Singapore godfathers of code. Um <laughs> and Singapore godfathers of code. I didn't know there was such a group, but uh of people yeah, I'm glad there I mean, is. Like, yeah, no I, I don't know if it's Ruby or he's um he was kind of he was being a little bit coy about it actually in his presentation, which was charming. Um, he he just rattled through uh, like a dozen different use cases that they're building and working on. They've got obviously the the deregulation uh, vector, but then there's of course you know the whole shift towards renewable energy sources and then storing energy and having to then have all this energy storage plus like increasing in electric vehicles and charging stations around the city. And so there's a lot of opportunity for bringing transparency to consumers about energy consumption, energy storage, um, you know, all these different options that are kind of emerging. Whereas before it was really just like the energy you produce, that's, you got to use it right then. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, it, I think of it as, you know, imagine a business transforming from having no inventory to suddenly having inventory, mm -hmm. like the accounting implications of that um, alone are tremendous, let alone, okay, what, what can you actually do in terms of the services that you can provide, plus all the requirements that you now have around managing inventory. 
Um, no, I don't think their their inventory can go stale. I don't know. I don't Did know electricity if, go stale? Yeah, you know, thinking I'm like I'm now my accounting brain is switching <laughs> on. I'm thinking about like LIFO and FIFO. Uh, you know, if you're if you're using the cost of the the first in or the last in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for each unit, or you want to do like some kind of average. Um, FIFO or LIFO, as some people like to pronounce it. Um, I think it's totally debatable. Um, and I will go LIFO and FIFO all day long. Um, and you can just, you can just prove me wrong if you want. To. I, I'm going to take your lead on that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, yeah. Again, These, this is the hotbed of accounting debates well, right here. I know we, if we get you going on accounting, we could fill up several episodes. Yeah. No, I mean, like, get your hands off these intangible assets, uh, yes. person, because I just got a few more jokes coming <laughs> when it comes to looking at the balance sheet here. Um, anyways. Anyway. Yeah. No, that was lots of lots of good use cases and interesting to hear kind of from that particular sector. I think anyone in, in energy, utilities, stuff like that will want to catch that replay because um, there's a lot that was very industry specific, but um, interesting examples, you know, screenshots of the actual interfaces that have already been built for all these different experiences. So they're, they're far enough down the path um, with a lot of this. Mm-hmm. There was also, there was something you mentioned about kind of the, you know, the, the change happening in DBS with the, the shift towards the developer centric view and that platform team operating as a product. And it, it reminded me of this um, breakout on probably, I think it was on Wednesday. Like I said, it's all a blur, right? Mm. Um and it was a, an Air Force breakout. So there was there was the main stage, um, which was one of my favorite keynotes uh, with the the Kessel Run uh, team, Brian Kroger, um, Captain Brian Kroger, and then uh, Lauren Nausberger, uh, who's kind of the chief security. I have to look up her title, but um, you know the the two of them just were great up there covering kind of big picture and then, you know, getting down to the specifics, which I, as I've mentioned before, I love when, when folks can kind of bridge the two of those, but this, this other breakout actually had, um, there were, there were three, three fellows up there. Two of them were site reliability engineers for the Mm. air force. Um, and they're, uh, you know, it was, um, Alfred Brown and Daryl Smith and they, we're talking through their experience of setting up PCF in these remote locations. Um, so they didn't mention all the locations, but nonetheless, it, it was a question of, you know, how do we get this, how do we get PCF stood up and operating in places around the world so that all these other locations that the air force has to operate out of gets, you know, the similar experiences as folks back in, um, you know, in the, in the States. And they talked about, you know, the, they had 150 days to get it set up, um, which seemed pretty much crazy and impossible at the time, but they managed to pull it off. But they also talked about this sort of change that they've seen with their end users, right? This team is now communicating directly with the actual end users of the software. So going beyond just the, the changing relationship of, you know, a platform ops team, site reliability engineers and developers, but they, they now like the, the end users, instead of kind of putting in trouble tickets, just call, you know, Alfred and and Daryl over say, Hey, what should I do about this? And then, you know, they've, they've taught them how to use Slack 
to kind of communicate and take screenshots and, and get feedback. And so, you know, they described how these feedback loops have just gotten lightning fast and that, you know, the team actually knows who these people are who are running the platform. And so, you know, it just seemed like a really cool story about, again, kind of like breaking down these silos and getting these teams to actually talk to each other, um, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes just face to face when they would have, even though they might be in the same building, never spoke face to face before. Um, and so when you have the opportunity to do that, just go do it. Uh, Absolutely. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I didn't have a chance to interview the Air Force, but I did have a couple of folks from Raytheon uh, join Pivotal Stories. So we did a couple of interviews uh, with Kyle McNiff and Todd Probert, both from Raytheon, and they talked a little bit about their work with the Air Force, as well as some of the other branches of the military. And they and they talked uh, touched on some of those things you you mentioned. Uh, you know, the the ability to uh, stand up PCF in that 150 days. In fact, uh, I believe they did it in 141 days with nine days to to spare. Uh, I'm not sure what they did with those extra nine days. I hope they enjoyed themselves. I had written down 148, but maybe I misheard. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was 141. I could, I could be off. Um, Like I said, it was a very long conference and a lot (laughs) of interviews. I could, I could be mixing up my figures, my facts and figures, but uh, nevertheless, it was, they did come in, come in under the wire. Uh, Partly uh, one of the, one of the things we talked about was their decision to go with the pivotal ready architecture, which Mm. essentially is, the uh, the offering from Dell Technologies that includes EMC uh, technology, VMware, and Pivotal running on top of that hardware, and how you can you know, drop that into an environment uh, and get it up and running in just a matter of, well, 141 days. They had the platform up and applications running. Uh, but the other thing we talked about, or I asked about, was you know working with armed services uh, and the challenges there in terms of implementing a more agile approach to software development. Because of course, you think armed services, you think about taking orders and uh, hierarchy and you know doing what you're told, soldier. Um, so does that, how does that uh, work when you're trying to fit into that type of culture? Uh, and Kyle talked a little bit about it and there really is no silver bullet, but one important thing was the willingness of, I guess the the, the brass, I don't know if it goes, goes all the way up to the generals, but uh, the willingness of the Air Force, of the Navy, and the groups they were working with, at least within those organizations, to be a little bit more flexible. And, you know, he talked about the process and procedures they have. And in fact, introducing the labs concept and the pivotal way, so to speak, gave them an opportunity to look at those processes and, and ask some questions. Well, why do we do things this way? Uh, and so rather than be penned in by the existing processes, they thought about what was the original intent of these processes? What are we trying to achieve? Or what are we trying to, what are these processes trying to protect against? And are there other ways that we can have that same outcome, but in a more agile way? So it gave them a chance to really rethink the way they do things. And again, that flexibility, giving permission to be flexible from the top was really important in that case. Uh, But nevertheless, they're still abiding by the intent of the processes. They're just finding new ways to actually implement them, which is a pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting thing. Uh, They they pointed out the Air Force in particular as being great uh, around this. uh, And and hopefully the rest of the armed forces can follow that lead over time. Yeah. I mean, well, this reminds me of a couple of the different talks. One um, there was the there was a great keynote from uh, Chris Fussell from the McChrystal Group, and he's written a couple books. He's an ex Special Forces, and so talking about the specific challenges in 
the the armed forces with kind of shifting from that command and control hierarchical structure to sort of this more networked. He had some great anecdotes about how that really has been, uh, you know, the, the challenge with the war on terror is sort of this forcing function to think differently about how your your organizational structure needs to work and how information needs to flow. Um, and so it's it was a I think it was a really poignant example to bring into this environment because it's I think it's it's probably most acute in organizations like that, like in the in the armed forces. But I think a lot of organizations have to start to you know put the word think into rethink um, and realize that they've got a lot of brains on deck. Um, that need to be activated. And and to that point, there was actually a great um, panel discussion with some folks from Boeing. There are actually two different Boeing panels, but this is the one that had Sophia Bright, who's their, um, she's a senior director and kind of their, their human um, ops organization. I can't remember the exact name, but she, she had just awesome and really inspiring things to say about what they're trying to do and talking about transforming the organization into a learning organization. And, you know, she she highlighted that one of her biggest challenges is just building up the confidence in the team to operate in that learning organization model, right? And that it's like, I need you all to be thinking, right? Not just taking orders and saying, okay, my job is done. It's, I need you to be thinking about what do we need to get done here? How could we do this better, safer, faster, et cetera? The panel was on kind of operating at speed with safety, but um, I really liked her points about, you know, this needs to be a thinking organization. And so how do you activate a thinking organization? There's a lot of empowerment and enablement. And, you know, her comment about just building up the confidence in people to to not think of it so much as like, I'm challenging, but it's like, I'm, I'm just thinking here and, uh, and, and I'm doing that in order to make this all better. And so I thought that was, really, um, I thought it was really cool. Um, she was, she was a great person to listen to. I could, I could picture her on the main stage in in future years. Uh, but anyways, there was, there was something else you mentioned, shoot, that I wanted to talk about. Oh, for Raytheon, um, there was a breakout session with a couple other folks from Raytheon. Um, and they were talking about some of the you know, how they build in security and meet a lot of the, the the compliance and regulation that they have, you know, obviously as like any regulated organization, but then of course they're a, a vendor into uh, the military and the government. And so they have kind of a lot of the, the stringent controls, you know, the NIST controls and whatnot. And that one and this other talk from Matt Rule from Liberty Mutual were two really interesting talks around security and what both of those teams have done to kind of bake in security, both into the platform as well as into the pipeline um, and and some of the changes there. I think that that is that whole shift in security um, and the, the, the mindset and the who's got responsibility for what there's just, there's like a groundswell happening there. And it's going to be really exciting to watch how security conversations change because there's a whole different set of players that are are starting to wake up and pay attention to, you know, building more secure code because that's better code. Absolutely. Um, well, one group that we have to talk about, of course, is Dick's Sporting Goods because 
they did show up to the conference, 40-some-odd strong, in a party bus, is my understanding. Now, I didn't actually get to lay eyes on the party bus, but I can imagine it was it was quite a sight to behold. Well, so I, it was a bus. I'm not sure how party bus it was because I, uh, I was talking to, to Matt, the, um, the account exec from Pivotal. And he was like, well, you know, we had to leave at like seven in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, so no one, no one was really in the, the parting mood on the way down, maybe on the way back. Who knows? Maybe they, they definitely celebrated on the way home, I hope they did. but it, it did sound, you know, it's a, it was a, an, a very efficient mode of, to transport uh, 40 people from Pittsburgh uh, to D.C., um, which, I mean, I, I love. And it's like, yeah, show up in force and then you can start to optimize how your team gets there. Um, and uh, I'm sure the, the finance department loves that. Yes. Um, well, I think, uh, A, brilliant idea on the bus. B, got to interview J and JP from... Dick Sporting Goods, and they had some some great insights about uh, really developer productivity, but even more importantly, that reducing time to value with PCF. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about the Air Force a moment ago with PRA uh, getting up and running quickly. Well, once you're up and running, there are other aspects of of the speed equation. Things like how quickly can you provision a new environment for a new product team. And talking to Dick Sporting Goods about this, they were mentioning, well, in the past, it would take us two or three months to get an environment ready when somebody had a new idea. They can do that now in 30 minutes Yeah, with peace, with, with Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Uh, that was pretty impressive. Um, just onboarding a new developer used to take days, perhaps a week or more, again, down to 30 minutes. So they were a really powerful example of what you can do in terms of reducing that time to value and getting up and running quickly. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of standing up a new environment for product team in 30 minutes versus three months is pretty dramatic. I mean, you think about how quickly the market moves and you've got a new idea for product and you've got to wait 30 minutes or three months. Uh, If you're waiting three months, your idea could be uh, passed by by the time you get that environment up and running. So that that was pretty impressive. Um, Well, and speaking of time to value, there was a breakout session from uh, Greg and Brian from Cerner. So Greg and Brian actually gave a great talk last year that I loved. And, you know, the two of them were up again. I was like, huh, I'm curious, like, you know, is it going to be revisiting some of that? And and there was a little bit of that, but they, they really actually, they, they broke into to new ground and new territory. And Greg Meyer uh, sort of did the first half and he went through four different use cases where they've done pretty deep value stream mapping. Um, and so in terms of, yeah, looking at where there's these huge lags, um, whether it's setting up a developer or, you know, getting a developer onboarded. Some of Greg's examples were things like, you know, there's a, there's a developer database, right? It's not a production database. It's just a dev database. And in the past, if that went down, you know, it would take seven days and a couple of resources and, you know, they probably weren't backing it up. So sorry, you lost your data. It wasn't production data. So it was probably like not that important, but it might set the the developer back a little bit. Um, and you, there's a, there's a developer productivity cost associated with that. And then now they've got it running on PCF. They're doing some of the, the Bosch backup and restore. And, you know, that can happen. I'd have to look up, but it's, you know, a, a, a tiny amount of time and they have all the data. 
um, and and fewer people that have to muck around with it to get this back online. And then there were two uh, two or three other examples that that they gave, and he had kind of the list of steps involved. But you know, really this this mindset of just honing in on where where is all the waste and the 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 delay and how do we start to just shrink that down um and so you know dick's talking about it cerner gave some great examples that replay is going to be i think really good and i i just like the variety of examples there were some stuff that hadn't i hadn't heard before like getting developer up and running I've, I've heard examples of that and i'm always astounded that it takes two to three months to get a developer environment up but that's just that's the world that most enterprises are living in um, but yeah, so, you know, re restoring a developer database is just like, yeah, you may not think of that, but that actually does cost time and productivity, uh, and resources that are dealing with that. Um, or the loss of a, a production mm -hmm. node was another example he gave. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's great that it's like, yeah, you, there's, there are so many value streams out there that you could potentially dig into to map. Um, and I think looking at what, folks at, at Spring One shared can kind of give you an idea of, oh yeah, like we do spend kind of a, an ugly amount of time on that. Like maybe we should change that. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the beauty of value stream mapping is it helps you identify things that maybe you hadn't thought of before because it's a deliberate exercise uh, to, to, to go through that entire uh, process. In fact, I'm thinking of applying that to some of the things I do that are not even software related. I could, I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are things I could, I could uh, remove from uh, my workflow that would actually not, take away any value, but speed up the process. I'm right there with you. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little afraid to know <laughs> like the ugly truth. Yeah, that's true. Can you, can you take the truth? Um, well, now, now what about some of the old family members? We've talked about some new family members that uh, joined us this year, but there was, of course, some some family members that have been around for a while. I got a chance to speak with T-Mobile again this year. I spoke with them last year, uh, uh, Brendan A. and James Webb. Uh, T-Mobile platform engineers, and we talked a little bit about last time their uh, iPhone 10 release, uh, launch day, I should say, and they were one of the only carriers whose online uh, portal, their website, essentially, stayed up and running the entire time, didn't buckle under the traffic, unlike some of their competitors. And of course, since then, there's been yet another iPhone launch. In fact, uh, Apple released three iPhones uh, on a single day. Um and so, uh, once again, they were able to stay up and running, no problem, thanks to PCF. Uh, we also talked about uh, PKS and Kubernetes and some of the things they're looking to do on that platform, or that abstraction, if you will. Um, and one of the interesting things they talked about was, of course, they're, they're putting together essentially a decision framework to make decisions about what applications and workloads run best on which platform uh which abstraction, PKS versus the Pivotal Application Service. Uh, but one of the things he did talk about was educating developers specifically around making those decisions. And he said one of the interesting things they're finding is developers whose applications probably would uh, benefit from running on the application service because PKS generally, but I should say Kubernetes specifically, is kind of one of the hot things these mm -hmm. days. He's finding developers want to run on Kubernetes, even though it's not necessarily the right Right abstraction. Yeah. Uh, they don't. They don't need to bring their own container to the to the platform. The application service would actually help them focus more time on writing code. But because it's Kubernetes, they want to run there. So they're having a little bit of a challenge there, educating and uh, helping developers understand the benefits uh, and the differences between the two abstractions, which is understandable. Um, 
because they're both great abstractions but serve different purposes um but that was one of the things they're working on that that struck yeah, me yeah i mean i think we we talked about this a couple of months ago with chad around you know resume driven development and you know folks wanting to sort of be able to stick a hot um you know pick whatever the 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 stack component is um to claim you know experience with it and which is understandable um you know but i feel like there's there's another resume that they should probably be thinking about writing which isn't littered with um you know technology jargon and and different projects that are out there that they've played with but is like you know here's here's the business value i delivered um and so speaking of kind of folks that have come back right uh returning family members the I mentioned the the main stage talk from the Air Force, and they they revisited that the Project Jigsaw, which was the the now kind of well known um, air um, retanking re, <laughs> refueling tanker application that was built that was taking you know maybe a a, a million plus. Uh, in savings a week, and that they actually shared how that's progressed, right? Continuing to get feedback, and like the work wasn't done, um, and now it's actually doubled the amount of savings that it's delivering. And I think if I caught it was it kind of flashed up on the screen. He had a great table of kind of where things have come from last year to now, and I think the the number of resources working on it is even fewer, and so. Um, that to me is like, that's the resume driven development, um, that, that as a developer, you should be focused on is what can you point to in terms of, you know, I reduced the, the time for this business function from, you know, A to B, or I, you know, was able to cut this much out of our supply chain costs. Um, and actually this is, uh, you know, Brian Kroger, the, the, the Air Force captain who was up there on the main stage. If you if you find his LinkedIn profile, you will see that his resume is not littered with technology jargon. It is it is littered with different examples of the projects that they're they've done. Um, <laughs> so that's my that's my sneaky find on the internet as I, I do background research on people. I'm like, oh wow, this is great. <laughs> you don't worry, you weren't stalking or anything. Um, I don't do any of that. No, none of that. None of us do any research. of that. Research. You, you know, you can't research. see the air quotes, but it's research. Yeah. Yes, research. Historical purposes. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I've been uh, thinking about that. You know, I think of it as uh, think of it as like a star athlete, or or you know, say a great quarterback who's got great, uh, great you know physical raw talent, great skills, can throw the ball further than anyone, harder than anyone. Uh, you know, just just on pure physical ability is just unbelievable versus a quarterback who maybe doesn't have those skills, but just has a better, has better outcomes. you know, it makes, does the right small things that are correct and gets the team victories versus a guy who might be really talented, but doesn't always focus on the most important thing, which is just getting the win. So it might be a bit of a stretch, but that's kind of how I think about it. I, I suppose maybe there is a better sport analogy I can find. It could be a pitcher maybe, could yeah, be. I don't. I don't know enough. I think about the football thing. Um, apparently, I'm now a running expert uh, <laughs> uh, and and tour guide of DC. However, I know what you mean, especially in terms of thinking about it as a team sport. Where mm. you know, like I remember, I don't know. This was 
long time ago. So I have no idea where the the college uh, basketball scene is now, but someone explaining that, you know, Stanford was at a, often had a really good basketball team. They tended to not have the kind of really bright, shiny star athletes that were the top picks and whatever, but they had a really good way of operating as a team. And so, you know, without the kind of the superstars and the rock stars, they had a winning team because they, the, the, their coaching philosophy was really around that. And so, um, you know, again, it's like focus on the outcome as opposed to any one person on the team having the best single record in whatever it is. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's, maybe there's a whole money ball angle to, to dig into there, but I I feel like that's going to have to, we're going to have to save that for another episode. And when I've had possibly more green tea than I've had this morning. Okay, deal. That makes sense. <laughs> um, but also, that's kind of a tee up for a future podcast that we have. Um, thinking about even just uh, focusing on the team first. Mm. Mm. You see where I'm going team with first. this? Yes, I do. I do. I like it. Right. So uh, I think I'm going to just back slowly out of the conversation <laughs> now and leave that that cliffhanger there for folks. <laughs> Focus on the team. That was I was that was an echo. I just did that. That and that wasn't a special sound effect. No, folks. we that need was those. That was all domain. Yeah. Well, we do. Yes, we do need some sound effects. Um, I think we do have some. So let's see. If you say a nice joke, I can go. Oh, I've been waiting for that for years. Yes, uh, and I've got a little dramatic piano. If you're so inclined. Well, I think this is the perfect soundtrack for closing with our deep thoughts on the. Team. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Uh, absolutely. Well, thank you, Dormain. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a lovely day. Goodbye now. <laughs> that was the creepiest ending we've ever done. <laughs>